We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. One of my favorite comedians is a fellow by the name of Louis C.K. I like Louis C.K. because he is very thoughtful in his humor. It's, I consider it to be a little bit highbrow humor, and he's side-splittingly funny. He does this whole bit about people and airplanes in particular. And he was talking once about how he was on an airplane ride from New York to LA. And it was a few years ago. He's on the airplane, and the captain comes on in the middle of the flight and says, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new feature available to all of you. We have high-speed internet on this plane. Well, Louis C.K. thinks this is incredible. He opens up his laptop, and he starts checking his email. He's looking at the news. He is watching YouTube videos. He thinks this is amazing. And somewhere midway over the flight, somewhere around over Omaha, the pilot comes on, and he says, I'm sorry, we've had a little glitch with our system, and we can no longer offer Wi-Fi throughout the balance of the flight. And the guy sitting next to Louis C.K. goes, "Ugh, this is bogus. And Louis C.K. looks at the guy and says, what is your problem? You are on a vessel that is 20,000 tons, made out of metal. You're flying from New York to Los Angeles. You're going to land softly on giant tires filled with air that you can't even understand how they attach them to a plane. And you're complaining about this? You, you are sitting on a chair in a cloud. You're like a mythical figure. How in the world can you be complaining about this. For some reason or another, I've always loved that bit. And it might have been that little piece that inspired an incident that happened in my life a couple of weeks ago. It was right in the middle of serious threats like we have now with North Korea. It was the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, but it was before Hurricane Irma. We knew it was coming. And there was great talk also about a government shutdown because the debt ceiling might not be raised. And there I was at the checkout line at Whole Foods. And the friendliest people in the world are cashiers at Whole Foods. And there's a woman right in front of me, and she's checking out, and the cashier says to her right in front of me, says, this woman, and how are you this fine day? Now with all of these things happening in the world, the woman looks at her, she goes, well, the entire world is falling apart around us, but besides that, I'm fine. Now, maybe it was the fact that the sun was shining on my face a particular way, or maybe because I played golf the day before, maybe the Prozac was working on all cylinders. I don't know what it was. (laughs) But something caused me to just almost like burp out the following response. I said, lady, are you crazy? It is a gorgeous day outside. The sun rose from the sky. You're buying granola. It's three o'clock in the afternoon and you still have exercise pants on. Why are you complaining? (laughs) I'm glad you're laughing. She wasn't. (laughs) What became clear at that moment is I created this total scene. The entire store stopped. There were people in frozen foods with the door open, the like, the steam was coming out on their face, and they're all staring at me, and I am 
totally mortified at this point because it just came out. I couldn't control it. So I like, I put my head down, I paid $7 for the one banana, and I went on my way. <laughs> but from that moment forward, for the last few weeks, I have been analyzing this worry, this negativity, and this pessimism that is pervading our world. Now last week, someone said to me, Rabbi, how are you doing today? Now, I could get that question anywhere from two to 102 times on any given day. But for some reason, I stopped for a minute. And I said, you know what? I'm good. I'm really good. I wish I could take off a few more pounds. But besides that, there is not one thing, not one, that I would change in my life. Not one thing. Now, I couldn't always say that. So what changed? A lot of hard work, a lot of very serious soul searching, and a different posture on the relationships that matter the most. Now I can promise you this did not happen overnight, but at the risk of quoting Miley Cyrus, the climb was really worth it. See, I learned when looking inward that I was what I'm gonna call a classical Jew. I was focused on everything that was broken. I was the guy who would have sent at the checkout counter the world's upside down, everything's falling apart, woe to us. But I wouldn't have only complained to the cashier. I would have complained to, and I would have complained about my wife. And I would have complained to, and I would have complained about my parents. And I would have complained about my kids and all the things that they were doing and all the things that they weren't doing. And I would complain about my job as a rabbi. And sometimes I complain about some of you in this room. But with a lot of hard work and a lot of elbow grease, all of us, all of us have the opportunity to pivot and to see the world with a lot more light and a lot more color instead of gloomy and gray. Speaking personally with you for a minute, the turning point in my relationship with Dory was realizing that indeed she has peccadillos and she has idiosyncrasies, or as we would call them in our parlance, shtick. And some of that shtick would drive me absolutely bonkers. But there were two things that I realized too. One, I have shtick as well. Two, was a question that was really compelling that I've been focused on by someone who I've respected and loved very, very much. They asked me, David, why are you always focused on what's wrong and pushing aside everything that's right? Why was it that if Dory went shopping, for example, and had a shopping list of 15 things and came home with 14 of those 15, what do you think I did? Why did you forget this one thing? Why did we perseverate on this one piece? And to be fair, and she would say the same, it would be the same way when I would go shopping with 15 items on the list and come home with 14. Now, my kids get 14 out of 15 on a test, pretty happy with that. If my Returns as an investor were making that percentage, I'd be really satisfied. So why was it that we were focused on just these one things? Well, if we take the time to notice the behavior and we start addressing all of the critical elements that can make it better, you and I, we can put on new lenses in our lives that will make our relationships so much better.
It will not make them perfect, but it will make them a lot better. So much of what we focus on is the broken, the part that's missing and that which doesn't work. We focus on that one thing that's missing from the shopping list, but the main problem with that is we're never able to step back and to see the whole. We can't see the 14 things we did pick up. We can't see what it is that we did accomplish. We can't see what it is that we did capture. And that makes the standard perfection, which is impossible to keep consistent. And it means that way we are inevitably whining about the broken and we're not praising the whole. Now, if you were a Jew like me, who always focuses on what's missing and what's broken, the good news is this complaining and worry is something you come by honestly. Throughout history, the Jews of the world have had a lot of reasons to grieve and to worry. We have been persecuted for basically our entire existence, and this has led to a long and very proud history of whining and complaining. And we will complain about just about anything, and we'll worry about it too. We'll worry about an illness and then complain when we have it. In fact, some of you might be worried that you're catching an illness just by me talking about the illness right now. Some of you worry and complain about going to work, and some of you worry and complain about not having any work at all. Sometimes I hear you complain about your parents. Sometimes I hear you worrying about your parents. Sometimes I hear you complaining and worrying about your kids. Sometimes I hear you complaining about your friends' bad habits and worrying that they make you look bad. And sometimes I hear you worrying about your friends' good habits that make you look bad. And this list goes on and on about our worrying and our complaining. Michael Wex said it perfectly when he titled his book, The Jews Are a People That Were Born to Fetch. But being persecuted isn't the only reason that we complain. We also are a very superstitious lot. You see, we Jews believe that showing happiness and satisfaction brought about the evil eye. So we would complain to ward off the demons of the world. This is what we call the Kenahora effect. <laughs> hey, Sam, how's business? Well, I can't say business is good because if I do, you know what's gonna happen. So I say, Kenahora, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> or if I say, Paul, how's your golf game? Can't say that you shot a 70 yesterday because you know what's gonna happen the next day. So you go, Kenahora, poo, 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 it's okay, I've, I've played worse. <laughs> Kenahora means literally without fear of invoking the evil eye and we pop it into these sentences like pepper so that we protect ourselves because what we're really afraid is we're afraid we're gonna jinx things. And we have behaved this way for centuries. Now what happens when you take all of this fetching and all this kenahara and all this baggage we have as Jews and now you're gonna sprinkle in some headlines and a little bit of internet news and you have a people who wake up every morning waiting for the apocalypse. And society seems to feed our insatiable appetite for this gloom and doom. Two nights ago, this was the 11 p.m. news teaser. What you're drinking might kill you. Tune in to find out what it is at 11. <laughs> the night before, the world's going to end in a fiery crash. Tune in at 11 to find out exactly when it will happen. And if you change the channel to a Jewish topic, it's just as bad. You're gonna read that Jewish communities are dwindling, shuls are closing, intermarriage is on the rise, affiliation to Israel is at an all-time low, be prepared to sit shiva for the Jewish people is the headline that you're going to see. 
Now we are part of the most advanced people in the history of humanity. We, you and me in this room, we have more access, more wealth, more resources than 98% of the world today, and we have more than 99.9% .9 of the world in the history of its existence. So why aren't we appreciating it? What if we were a little less afraid of jinxing things and more praising of the blessings that were bestowed on us individually? If we noticed more the progress we made as a people, and we could take stock of the obstacles that we've overcome together? What if we changed from complaining and fright to a posture of feeling and blessing and being appreciative? I want to share a, a moment that Dory and I had this summer that underscores this part of how the world is seen, sadly, through a dark lens, but it doesn't need to be. We went to a movie while the kids were at camp, a matinee, and the movie was called Detroit. It's about my hometown. In 1967 in Detroit, along with Newark and Watts and Oakland, there were serious civil rights uprisings because of tensions that brewed between the African-American population and the white population in these towns. And there became actual riots that were tearing at the seams of more than these cities. They were really tearing at the fabric of what was the United States of America. It's two days into these riots in Detroit in 1967, and there is a report of gunshots, which ironically came from just a starter pistol at an annex of a hotel in downtown Detroit. The hotel's called the Algiers Motel. Well, the Detroit Police Department, the Michigan State Police, and the Michigan National Guard all responded to this call at the annex of the Algiers Motel. And several of the policemen there just ignored protocol and procedure and forcefully and viciously interrogated the guests to get a confession of where a gun was that didn't even exist. Now, these police officers had no reverence to human rights or to civil rights. It's these men and women who are being questioned who are predominantly black. By the end of the night, three unarmed black men were killed while several others were brutally beaten and they were forever traumatized. So here Dory and I were almost 50 years to the exact date of this real heinous event. Dory and I opened the doors to the theater and the light was coming in and blinding us and right next to us was a man probably 10 years older than we were, a white man, and he pushes the door open with all of his might and he says, 50 years later and nothing has changed. 50 years later, and nothing has changed. What? 50 years later, and nothing's changed since the Algiers Motel in 1967? Well, listen to this for a minute. Did you know that in 1958, 44% of white people said that if a black family moved next to them, they would move in 1958? Today, that number is less than 1%. In 1940, 60% of employed black women worked as domestic servants. They were maids in white people's homes. Today, that number is less than 2%. And 60% of black women today hold white-collar jobs. In 1964, the exact same year that the Civil Rights Act was passed, 18% of white people said they knew someone or were friends with someone who was black. Today, 
86% of white people are proud to say they have black friends, and 87% of black people are proud to say that they have white friends. The number of black doctors in the last 30 years has tripled. The number of African Americans earning equal salary to white people is at an all-time high. And all of this happened in the blink of an eye in what is the spectrum of time. It all happened in 50 years. And I could stand here for the rest of the day citing off facts and figures that will inspire us and blind us. Why is that? Well, I think it's because progress is the largely suppressed story of race and race relations over the past half century. Progress is the story that is not told. Now, that is not to say that there is no room for growth and that there is no room for progress. Boy, is there ever. But I think it's because we refuse to see progress that we've made that we feel like we've stalled. There was a recent Gallup poll that said that only 33% of African Americans believe that the quality of life for blacks and that race relations in America have gotten better. And even yesterday, yesterday, there was another report where that number doubled. So here you have a reality that says that the numbers in the last 50 years have had a dramatic and significant rise. But you have a perception that everything is in a stall. And the delta between the reality and the perception is vast, and sadly, it's widening. Now, maybe it's widening because there have been a lot of really painful episodes in the recent past that have hurt the soul of our country again. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be to be a young black man pulled over by a white police officer today. In the era of Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and Freddie Gray and too many others to list, all of these people were unarmed black men who were killed by police officers. Now there is a problem in our country with police brutality towards black men and this problem must be addressed. We have a very long road ahead of us indeed. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look back to see how far we've come. Should we ignore the fact that we went in 1967 from Detroit and Oakland and Newark and Watts, in 1967 to Barack Obama in 2008? That's progress. I'm curious. Which glasses are you wearing to the movies? Which lenses are you putting on to watch history unfold before your eyes? When people ask me what keeps me up at night, it's not a worry of sitting shiva for the Jewish people. What keeps me up at night is the long-term effects that this worrying and this fetching are having on us individually, that they're having on all of us as a society, and that it's having on us as a religion because pessimism is turning into a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we only orient ourselves to say, nothing's been gained, nothing's better, then we're gonna feel like any issue. And if we use, for example, the issue of racial equality, that nothing has happened, that all we are doing is spinning our wheels towards an unattainable goal. But if we do the opposite and are optimistic instead of pessimistic, and we distinguish the strides that we've made, I believe that will work as a fuel to power us forward and to go further. That's the difference 
between that perception and that reality. And we need that fuel to get out of the stall. Martin Seligman wrote a great piece in 1990 called Learned Optimism, which really opened the gateway to this notion of positive psychology. And what he did was he just focused on all of the benefits of being optimistic in life. And this is what he boiled down all of his research to. That optimists were generally better at overcoming misfortunes in life, and they gave up a lot less easily when they were challenged with something. Now, since Seligman's work in 1990, thousands of people have done serious research on optimistic living. And all of their research seems to prove the following things. That people who are optimistic are often linked with better health, longer lasting friendships, successful marriages, and even career triumph. So in short, those that look on the brighter side of things seem to be getting a lot more sunshine in life. Well, if that's true, then perhaps some of what can help us is just doing what I tell my kids to do and turn that frown upside down, so to speak. Just imagine if we shared as many happy things as bad. Imagine if the news spent 26 minutes inspiring us and three minutes worrying us. Imagine if we listed all the things we successfully picked up from the grocery store. Or imagine if we could say all the reasons why we love and adore someone as opposed to the few things they do that seem to get on our final nerve. Imagine if we applauded the leaps that we've taken as opposed to only worrying about the steepness of the mountain that's in front of us. Imagine if we just stopped fetching for a bit. When marches happened this August in Charlottesville, I was inundated with comments and thoughts and reports from all avenues and walks of my life. There was a sense of shock by so many that the Jewish people were targeted and hated, and I saw people were walking around differently in our community. People were walking around with a real fear that the freedom that they knew and appreciated as Americans and as Jews in this country was soon coming to an end. People would come up to me and they'd say, Rabbi, how could this happen? Rabbi, why, why do they hate us? Now, if you were one of these people who said that to me or even thought it, you would fit neatly into that little box of people who proclaimed post-Charlottesville it's 2017, and Nazis are marching in America. How can this be? Really? You're surprised? You had an idea that hatred in this country would just evaporate? That evil seekers would no longer exist? Really? You thought that? Well, let me clue you in on something. If we have humans in the world, we will have some of those humans that seek to do evil and that profess hatred towards another. That truth is as old as humans themselves. It dates all the way back to the time of Cain and Abel. However, let's talk about what was different in the response to these ugly events in Charlottesville. How many of you that cried out about the hate that was rising in our country took inventory of the throngs. And when I say throngs, I mean literally thousands upon thousands of people that came to Charlottesville to counter-protest those haters. How many of you took stock of the swarms of protesters that in sheer number silenced the next Nazi KKK rally that was scheduled in Boston two weeks later? So much so that the news didn't even nibble at the story. 
We've always had hate in this country. What's new and what's different are people that love life and love equality and humanity enough to march for it. What's new were the non-Jewish members of the armed services of the Navy and the Marines that stood at the doorpost of the synagogue and said, we'll stand here so that you can pray in peace. And they said, are you Jewish? They said, no, we're Americans. That's what's new. That's worth sharing. People who stood up with placards and marched for freedom for everyone and people who were even willing to die for it like Heather Heyer. That's what's different. And that is so much more contagious than the story that is full of negativity about hate. Now, we cannot be naive to hatred or cavalier in the face of threats. That would be very dangerous for us as Jews who know better from our history and in life in general. But it's equally unwise for all of us to ignore the progress that we've made and to refuse to recognize advances that we have achieved. Do you remember a few years ago when there were terror attacks at the hyper market in Paris? Any Jew with a few shekels in their pocket packed up their things and headed to Israel. There wasn't a Jewish media outlet that did not cover the story. Jews making an exodus for fear of their life out of Paris to Israel. How many of you saw a story like that? But how many of you saw the story of Manuel Valls, the prime minister of France, who stood in front of thousands of French citizens of all stripes and backgrounds and said, France is not France without Jews in it. The prime minister of France said this to his entire nation. The idea of Jews leaving, he said, is unbearable for us. And we will do everything we can to ensure that every person in our society can live in freedom and in peace. How many people heard that story? How many people remember that? Because let me tell you something. Throughout history, whether it was in Spain in 1492 or in Germany in 1939 or every time in between, it was the leaders of government and the police forces that shoved us out. There were people standing on the street when we were being evicted and led to our either exile or death that spat at our feet and said, good riddance, Jews. And now you have leaders of countries standing up and advocating for us too. How many of you notice that side of the story? When we stand on the sidewalk of life with a bucket of water in our hands, ready to douse out these embers of hate that could fan into giant flames of hatred, look to your right and look to your left, and you will see other people that stand there with buckets too, some Jewish and some not. And it's time for us to realize in the midst of this hate that our allies far outnumber our adversaries. And that is a really compelling fact. I see a lot of our college students who came home. I see a lot of parents who have sent their kids off to college this year. Some have come back and finished. And there is not one parent or one student who goes off to a major university in this congregation that doesn't come and talk to me about their fear on campus of BDS. This boycott, divestment, and sanctions that's happening against Israel. They say, Rabbi, is my child going to get sucked into this? Are they going to learn to hate Israel? Are they going to advocate for Israel so much that they're going to be pushed off soci uh, socially? What's going to happen to them? Is it going to affect the way that they're trying to study and is it going to interfere with their 
academic endeavors. There's a lot to worry about on campus. There's no question about it. But how many of you that had that conversation with me and that have worried about your kid or the kid itself, the student itself worrying on campus, how many of you have noticed that in the 10 years of fighting this issue of BDS on campus, that we have dominated the fight, dominated it? That with over 4,500 degree-granting universities in the United States, not one, zero, not one, has divested from the state of Israel, not one. How many of you notice that? How many of you talk about that? How many of you are telling your kids that Hillel's today on campus are cooler, hipper, and more subscribed than ever before? How many of you are telling your kids that J-Date and Birthright is changing the numbers game in the Jewish world? How many of you are telling your kids all of these positive things that are happening for us? And how many of you are saying, the sky is falling? The Pew Report came out a couple years ago. And every single Jew I met who had read even the synopsis of the Jew Report, of the Pew Report, <laughs> Dr. Freud, pick up the courtesy phone. Anyone who had read that Pew report was ready to tear their clothes in mourning because they thought it was the end of the Jewish people. And everyone I know glossed over all of the amazing statistics in that report, and there were many. Here are two of the highlights of what are many. 97% of Jews were proud to be Jewish. 97% of Jews. Now get ready for this one. That's the highest number of people of any ethnicity proud to be part of their ethnic group in the history of polling. Not the history of a Pew Report, not the history of Judaism, not the history of America. In the history of polling, there's never been a number that high that Jews are proud to be who they are. Or how about this? Do you know they do these reports every decade or two? And the report that was 20 years before to the time of this Pew Report when managing between them what the Pew Report showed is that we had achieved even more than the optimists thought were possible. We had arrested the intermarriage rise. We had addressed by incredible numbers how many people, young in particular, were going off to Israel and connectivity to synagogues and Jewish culture was at an all-time high. But no one I know talked about that. They all talked about everything that was wrong and everything that was worrisome, and they all are prepared to sit shiva for the Jewish people. Hurricane Harvey was really devastating. As I said earlier, Dory's family lives in Houston, and thank God all of her family are safe. She has many cousins that had serious damage in their homes, and all of them were evacuated at some point. The synagogue where Dory had her bat mitzvah, where Dory was confirmed, and where even we had our rehearsal dinner before we got married. Happens to be the largest synagogue in North America, largest conservative synagogue. Its footprint is more than four times the footprint of our campus. It sustained serious damage. In parts of the sanctuary and even in their school wing, they had over four feet of water. Right now, as I am talking to you, right at this moment, that synagogue is having Rosh Hashanah services inside a Texas megachurch that opened up its doors to the members of the community. And the synagogue said, if you're a member of our synagogue, we don't care 
where you're for. Come and join us in prayer for Rosh Hashanah. And if you're not a member of our synagogue and you want to come, and you're not even Jewish, come also. Now, isn't that an amazing story? That people of a different faith open their doors and say, come and pray with us. Here we are. But what do we focus on? What about this story of a 32-year young woman who was pregnant and whose neighbors kept checking on her in the middle of the storm? And sure enough, she went into labor. So the neighbors called on other neighbors. They called the police. They lifted her up with a human chain above the filthy water, put her inside a police ATV vehicle that drove her to the hospitals that she could deliver the baby before its head even crowned. She was there in the hospital before the head even crowned. When history looks back at Hurricane Harvey, are they gonna see water that rose or are we gonna see people that rose higher? Are we gonna see lost homes? Are we gonna see damaged furniture? Or are we gonna see saved lives and unbreakable support systems and people of different faith that opened up their homes and their places of worship? That's the part that should be mentioned. That's the part that should be shared. This rubric, it applies everywhere. There's not one of us in this room who will have trouble looking for a reason to be cynical or unhappy. But it's time for all of us to start seeing the honey and stop worrying about the bee stinger. It's a time for all of us to start to narrow in on that gap from what is perception and reality. Let us see truth because that's a lot more contagious. Now, I realize all of this happy, positive talk probably feels very un-Jewish to all of you. It doesn't feel right that the rabbi's talking about not fetching and not worrying. In fact, someone yesterday said to me, my only complaint is that you told me I can't complain, rabbi. Look, we've had millennia of worrying and kenaharas, and we worry that it's not Jewish, but I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. It's actually quintessentially Jewish for us to be thankful. The Hebrew word for a Jew is Yehudi, and the root of that word comes from hodu, which means thankfulness, gratitude. That in order for us to be Jewish, we have to have an orientation consistent with our name and our identity to be thankful and to be appreciative. And that's why the central prayer for our religion that we close every service with is the Aleinu. And that's why we say the Aleinu an extra time. In just a few minutes, we're going to say the Aleinu again during the Musaf prayer. Because Aleinu loosely translates to something along the lines of, God, thank you for choosing us, and thanks for the countless blessings you've bestowed upon our people. So when we start off the new year, today, what is the starting line? We take an orientation of saying to God, thank you. We take an attitude of gratitude when beginning. And that's the exact same reason why we close every single one of the three prayer services 365 days of the year with the Aleinu prayer. Because when we step over the threshold from the prayer space to our actual lives, we should step into the world being thankful, being appreciative, and having gratitude. That's why we close with Aleinu. Now, if we can change our stance from one of complaint to compliment, and from protest to praise, and from griping to goodness, we can shed a lot of light in this world, and we can see beauty, and we can see the distances that we've traveled, and we can see the opportunities that are around us. No one did that better than Rabbi Akiva. 
There's a story told about Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Oshua, and Rabbi Akiva, all the guys that we read about on Passover. And they went up to Jerusalem, they're at Mount Scopus, the same place where Hebrew University is, and they're looking down at what was the temple, and they see that it's all in flames. And they tear their clothes as a sign of mourning. They then make the trek down the mountain, and they get to the place, what was the temple, the Holy of Holies, and they see that it is rubble, it is destroyed. And at that very moment, in the place where the Holy of Holies was and where the sacrifices were offered, they see an animal run wild through the space. And the three rabbis fall to the ground and they start crying. But Rabbi Akiva doesn't. He starts laughing and smiling. And these three rabbis look up at him with tears in their eyes and say, Akiva, why are you laughing? And he says, why are you weeping? He says, we're weeping because the Holy of Holies, the temple was destroyed. This is where we offered sacrifices to God and now animals are running through it. And Akiva goes, well, that's why I'm laughing. Because this indeed was the prophecy of Orion Zachariah. And we're gonna rebuild the temple and it will be bigger and better than ever before. So here they were in the midst of tragedy. And the three rabbis looked backwards at something that they couldn't undo, at a pain that had occurred to them. And they were sad. But Akiva said, no. It's not a time to look backwards. It's a time to look forward. Not at what was, but at what will be. That should be our posture. That should be our orientation. There are a lot of people in this room, myself included, that get mad at God for all the things that fall upon them. Why, God, did you destroy that temple? Why, God, did you take my husband? Why, God, did you take my daughter and my best friend? Now, these are serious questions. These are real questions. They're heartfelt questions. And I've shared them with you. And you should keep asking these questions. Some of them, we never know the answer, but it's important to ask. But I want to ask you this question. If you asked yourself that question or you asked God that question, have you taken the same time and energy to call out to God and to say the following? Thank you, God, for giving me my spouse. Thank you, God, for giving me my child. Thank you, God, for giving me my best friend. Thank you, God, for giving me the blessings that surround me today. Thank you, God, for giving me the love that I took for granted. And because I took it for granted, it hurts my heart so much more right now, God, because they're gone. Do we recognize God's blessings when they're given to us, or do we only complain when God takes something away? Now, obviously, these rogues-colored glasses that I'm encouraging all of you to put on for the new year, it's not gonna fix every pain and every sorrow. You and I have shed a lot of tears over the last 11 years with serious losses and pains and problems. For some of you, I know what you wouldn't give to have your mother sitting next to you today, or what you wouldn't give to be here without a cane or in better health, I get it. Doesn't mean that these people's losses were worth it because we can see blessings in it. But sometimes the healing balm within our salty tears is a moment that has made us change individually and as a family, that strengthened us. Maybe it's because someone lost their life or their battle that we have fought harder to say, you know what? I'm going to the Simcha this year. I'm gonna spend the money. I'm gonna take the time off work and I'm gonna go because life is too important to not go. My mother would have wanted me to go. 
Or maybe we hold on to someone a little tighter when we give them a hug, or maybe we look them right in the eyes and we say, I love you, or maybe we close every phone call with that. When someone dies, someone leaves us or we have these pains, there's nothing that will make that feeling evaporate. But there are moments that all of us can grow from and take as a positive, optimistic, different approach that can be a blessing within pain. Hayom harat olam. Today is the birthday of the world. Today, all of us are reborn, alive, and renewed. By the very fact that we are here, it means we didn't die. The Latin word for die is expiritus, which means when the soul departs our body. It's how we get the word expire today. Anyone know what the inverse of expire is? It's to inspire. We didn't die, so God's telling all of us we have to inspire, and we do that by feeling our blessings and by sharing it. In closing, I want to give you all three quick homework assignments to feel your blessings. The first thing I want you to do, starting right now, is to take inventory of the countless blessings that are in your life, some that you realize and others that you might have glossed over, and I want you to write them down on a piece of paper or put them in an email, but take stock of everything that's been bestowed upon you, every little thing. If your blessings are about another person, then I want you to carve out some time and to tell them. And if that's really hard for you to do or really awkward, then I want you to say, I have to do something really hard and awkward. My rabbi is making me do it. I have big shoulders, but do it. And if you can't do that, then write it down and give it to them. But acknowledge that blessing that someone else is to you. And if you feel blessings from God in your life, then take this time over the next 30 minutes of our service or the next 10 days of repentance and give serious thanksgiving to God. Don't pepper in a request, don't throw in an apology, just give thanks to God for every gift that was bestowed upon you and thank God in your spirit, thank God in your words and thank God in your actions. Second, try and stop fetching. When people ask you, how are the services for the high holidays? <laughs> Don't say, it was so cold in the sanctuary, or the bus took 20 minutes to get me to my car, or I only come one day and I didn't get to hear the clergy person I wanted to, or the rabbi made his point 15 minutes into a sermon, why did he have to keep going? Find something that did work for you. Find something that did resonate for you. Find the positive and share it, because it's actually the Jewish thing to do. Third and finally, I want you to see blessings within challenges. If you see a movie about racial tension and divide, or you find that your best friend's idiosyncrasies or peccadillos are driving you bonkers, try really hard not to mourn a lack of progress or not to focus on only the broken parts, but instead, hail the leaps and bounds that we have achieved in record time and notice the blessings that each person possesses and demonstrates. Take the positive reality and make it people's perception too. When you read something that inspires you, share it. When you learn about a storm, seek out the stories of survival and humanity because that's an inspiration that's gonna energize all of us. 
when you're on an airplane and the Wi-Fi goes out. Don't complain about it and marvel at the miracle of flight. When you're in line at the Whole Foods, make sure you greet the cashier with the same smile and good cheer that she or he greets you. Walk through life with lenses that allow you to see blessings because that will make this new year of 5778 one of sunshine, one of optimism, one of hope, and one of opportunity. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a year worth running towards. Shana Tova, happy, healthy new year to all of you.